Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So I was thinking about this. We, we've been for three, this is the third week where we've just been going over miscellaneous laws that Moses gave to the children of Israel before they went into the promised land. And Moses is really speaking his last words to the children of Israel. But we've had military laws, uh, civil laws, moral laws, and we'll have more of that today, personal and communal laws be introduced to us today. But I was thinking about this, laws, laws, and more laws, and I was thinking of a complaint that I've often heard about unbelievers toward the Bible, is that there's too many rules. I don't like the Bible, too many rules. They don't like the Bible because it points out that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the part they don't like. But when you talk about rules, and we look at the Old Testament Scripture, tradition teaches that, and I've never tried counting these, that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. But this pales in comparison to what's happening here in the United States. So I looked up about laws in the United States, and I found this article, and I'm going to read just two paragraphs of it of what country has the most laws the United States not only has the most laws in all history but we also turn out more new laws and regulations to manage our people every single year than most countries turn out in decades decades we need to go back to the decades laws coming slowly Congress has enacted approximately 200 to 600 statutes during each of its 115 terms so that more than 30,000 statutes have been enacted since 1789 and there have been 88 so 88,000 I'll read it right Too many eights here. 88,899 federal rules and regulations since 1995 through December of 2016. And only 4,312 are laws. Another 2,419 proposed rules that play in at the end of 2016. So there are so many laws. I looked this up again. It's kind of a common saying. So many laws in the United States that each one of us commit three felonies a day without even thinking about it. So we're all lawbreakers. And whether talking about the Bible or U.S. federal law, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're going to get some more rules here tonight for Israel as they entered into the promised land. And... I'm really stressing out on uh, toward the end of this chapter, Moses talks about if you make a vow that you are to keep what goes forth from your mouth. And so let me find that key verse. It's not transferred 
in my notes too well here. Oh yeah, so 23, 23, I just have 23 written here. So chapter 23, verse 23, that which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So that's a key verse for me. Uh, remember that Jesus said, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Any more of that than that is from the evil one. We'll see that verse later on when we get to verse 23. But um, keep it simple. And Jesus said, just keep it simple. Yes, no, don't add anything else to it. But God says in verse 23 of this chapter, if you make a vow, if you say something, then you better keep your word. But before we get to that, we see in verse 1, he who is emasculated or by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. And so this is referring to a man whose testicles are crushed. It can, with the Hebrew, it could literally mean that um, his sex organ has been cut off or castrated. And uh, not referring to they can't be part of the society. This is really talking about uh, civil law, the temple uh, religious law, I should say, as far as uh, formal services at the tabernacle or temple. We know that this was a rule for the priests themselves and the Levites that they couldn't serve um, if they were emasculated by crushing or mutilation, not enter the assembly of the Lord. And so it's not that this physically handicapped, they can't participate in the life of the community. That's not saying that, but this is specific orders to the Jewish people that are not applicable to the church today. We always need to remember that. Some of these may apply to the church. Some of them will not apply to the church. So we really have to not only consider what we're reading from the Old Testament, but consider the whole Bible and what we learn in the New Testament as well. In verse 2, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So illegitimate birth could include incest, um, intermarriage with people from other nations, um, maybe a baby out of wedlock. But mainly we'll discover in the very next verse the Ammonites and the Moabites were two groups that are specifically called out. They cannot enter into the assembly of the Lord. So I believe this is primarily what Moses has in mind when he gives us these words in verse 2, the illegitimate birth where a Jewish man marries a woman from Ammonite or Moabitess. We know that um, David came from such a relationship. So God did allow this with the Moab, his great-grandmother, Ruth. But here we have the law that's given in verses 3 through 6. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because... They did not meet you with bread and water on the road when they when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from 
Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all the days of your or all your days forever. So God did not allow Israel to meddle with the Ammonites, who were descendants of Lot's youngest daughter, as they made their way into the promised land. However, the Ammonites often meddled with Israel, coming against them and siding with their enemies. And the Moabites were descendants of Lot's older daughter. And although Moab and Ammon had a common ancestry with Israel, they could both tie back to the family line of Abraham. They were great enemies of Israel after they came out of Egypt. In Numbers 22 through 24 is where we learn about uh, Balak, king of Moab, hiring Balaam, wanting him to curse Israel for him. And it didn't turn out the way the king of the Moabites wanted, but Balaam ended up going with the king. And every time he opened his mouth, he ended up blessing four times, ended up blessing Israel. And one of those blessings, he prophesied about the coming of Jesus Christ in Numbers 24, 17. He prophesied of Jesus saying, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So this passage here in Deuteronomy 23 helped fuel the reforms of Nehemiah's day. They almost quote some of it verbatim in Nehemiah 13, 1 through 3. On that day, they read from the book of the Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, God turned the curse into blessing. And so it was, when they heard the law, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. So this, these verses right here in Deuteronomy 23, years later, uh, Nehemiah is after the kings of Israel after Israel was destroyed and went into Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah was actually 150 years after they came out of captivity to rebuild the walls there. And so at that time, reading the word of God fueled revival in their nation because they realized without knowing it that they've been disobedient to the word of God. And that is one of the things that, you know, we open up Scripture every week. We can read something that can prick our hearts and say, you know what, Lord, you're right. I haven't been walking in your ways in that area. And it can bring revival on a small scale from the individual to a larger scale to a church or a community or to a nation. So Balaam is mentioned also three times in the New Testament. I always like mentioning that. He's an Old Testament pagan prophet who prophesied concerning the Jewish Messiah and three times we are warned in the New Testament first by Peter 
2 Peter 2, 15 and 16, he warns, They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So he was a, a mad prophet. But here we learn the way of Balaam. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. And in Peter's day, there was the warning that there are those who are following the way of Balaam. They love the wages of unrighteousness. But in Revelation 2.14, we have the doctrine of Balaam, Jesus warning the church of Pergamos, saying, I have a few things against you because you have those there who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So Balaam worked around God's command. God said, you cannot curse Israel. And whatever I say to you, that you have to say. So Balaam said, fine, that's what I'll do. I'll say whatever you put on my lips. And so that he did. But afterwards, he taught the king of Moab, basically said, I can't curse them for you, but I can make it in order that God will curse his own people if you will take your women and allow them to kind of play the harlot with the young men of Israel and then God will judge Israel, and God did. And so he found a workaround, and here put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, things eaten, uh, sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. In our church today, we have those who are really following the doctrine of Balaam. They're trying to find workarounds. We know what the law of God says, but yeah, but, you know, that may have been a cultural thing for back then, and it doesn't apply to the church today. So they find workarounds of the law of God, which in their heart they know is wrong, but they're following the doctrines of Balaam. And Jude refers to the error of Balaam, referring to his greed. Jude 11, a one-chapter book in our Bible, Jude 11 says, Woe to them, for they have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. And so we have those, likewise, in the church today. They are greedy for gain, and those who are greedy for gain then run the air of Balaam. So in the New Testament, we have Second Peter 2.15, the way of Balaam. Revelation 2.14, the doctrine of Balaam. And Jude 11, the heir of Balaam. So the sins of the Ammonites and the Moabites, that this passage in Deuteronomy focuses on, though, is that they did not meet Israel with bread and water and that they hired Balaam to curse Israel. So they could have met them, fed them. Uh, if you recall the account of both these situations, Moses uh, didn't try to sneak through their country. He announced that they were coming. He asked permission. We'll travel on the king's highway. Um, we won't go to the left or to the right. If we need water, we'll pay for it. And we won't be a burden for you. But both countries would not allow them to enter. And so therefore, they were part of this assembly that were not to be allowed, the mixed marriages not to be allowed in the assembly of Israel. 
it would exclude them from worship in the land of Israel. But as far as the Edomites and the Egyptians, and we would think, why not the Egyptians? Why wouldn't the Egyptians fall in the same category? And I had a thought of this, about this, the reason why um, last week as I was studying this passage, if you recall last week I studied the wrong passage, I was getting ready for the teaching last week and had it all done and realized that I skipped a, a chapter in Deuteronomy and had to quickly go back and and fill in the chapter that I skipped. So this was all prepped last week. I went over it again this week. But I had a thought about Egypt. Why were they not to be abhorred? As it says in verse 7 and 8, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land, and the children of the third generation born to them may enter into the assembly. And so, in contrast to the Ammonites and the Moabites, down to the tenth generation, here we have children of the third generation. They can enter and they can worship at the tabernacle or at the temple. The Edomites were descendants of Jacob's twin brother Esau. And Esau was a man who rejected the things of God to satisfy his fleshly desires, such as his birthright and his blessing, as we learn in Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17, that he sold his birthright for a morsel of food, and he wanted to inherit the blessing, but was rejected and found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Tears. He wanted the blessing. He even cried because he didn't get the blessing. But here in Hebrews 12:17, we learn that Esau didn't actually ever repent. There are people who can put on a good show and cry and have tears, but it doesn't mean that they repent. But they were descendants of Jacob's uh, twin brother. I mean, descendants of. Abraham and Isaac, Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, and so they were brothers. And Israel sought passage through the territory of Edom. As they made their way to the promised land, they said, as I just mentioned, we'll stay on the king's highway. If we drink water, we'll pay for it. But still, Edom came out against them. Many men with a strong hand, Numbers 20, verse 17. So Edom refused to give him passage. So Edom kind of did the same thing that Ammon and Moab did. But yet, in the third generation, the children were allowed to be part of the people of Israel. So we also know that there were long-standing wars with Israel and Edom. They were subdued under David, but they remained a thorn till Israel was taken away into captivity by the Babylonians. And although the king of Edom refused Israel to pass through the land, they did not try to have them cursed, as Ammon and Moab did. Perhaps this is why they were allowed in. But the Egyptians was one that really stood out to me, because Israel had been enslaved in that land for 400 years. And then I remembered, God already judged Egypt. 
in Exodus 12:12, 12, 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt. On that night I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So in one sense, God already judged Egypt for not allowing Israel to be released. And so both Edom and Egypt, though they had mistreated Israel, Israelis were not to abhor these nations, and they could take them in as one of their people by the third generation. When it take them in as one of their people, Numbers 15, 16, one law, one custom shall be for you and the stranger who dwells with you. So whether Jew or Gentile, there was to be one law, one custom for all worship God. There was not to be a plurality of gods to be worshipped in Israel, but only one, Yahweh. 9 through 14, we have ceremonial uncleanness. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be that when evening comes, he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. So basically, the man's had an emission of semen of some sort. Uh, he had to go outside the camp. He had to wash and re-enter the camp at the evening. And this is just ceremonially being unclean until evening. The same law was given pertaining to a husband and wife when they had sexual intimacy. Uh, though not mentioned here, this is the same law where they would be deemed outside, deemed ceremonially unclean until the evening they wash and then they're able to conduct themselves again in the community. And this is really talking about the religious side of the community. 12 through 14, uh, back at the camp then, you shall place outside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out. And you will have an in implement among your equipment you need a shovel. When you sit down and go out, you shall dig and dig with it and turn over and cover your refuse. And the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Here's the reason for all this. Verse 14, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you, to give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. So basically, they're human waste. The latrines for the warriors were to be set up outside of camp, not in the camp, because the Lord was in the camp and he was not to see any unclean thing. Their camp was to remain holy. So Leviticus 26:12, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Miscellaneous laws. In verses 15 and 16, we see laws concerning runaway slaves. And so this is really, I believe it's dealing with, though it doesn't specifically say, um, but slaves that came from another country into Israel, you shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place where he chooses within one of your gates 
And so this is not really to the individual when they says they've escaped from the master to you, to you, the nation of Israel. He may dwell within the midst of Israel, wherever he chooses, in one of your gates, one of your cities, where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. So it seems to be referring to a runaway slave, a foreigner, foreigner, not of Israel. But they came to Israel to find a place of refuge. No ritual prostitutes, 17 and 18. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or perverted ones of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring any of the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So ritual prostitution, whether male or female, but notice with the male, the perverted one, they referred to it as the price of a dog. So not looked up very highly. They were not to be any ritual prostitution, whether male or female. It was common in pagan worship. In pagan worship, they would use male and female prostitutes uh, in hopes of appeasing their gods with fertility for crops and children by participating in these pagan rituals. It could be that really they were using this as an excuse to fulfill their lustful desires, the desires of their flesh, but such practices were to be forbidden in Israel. So loaning usury, as it's said here in the New King James, but loaning money, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. So anything that you could lend out at an interest, you don't do that to one of the fellow Israelis. Verse 20, to a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land in which you are entering to possess. And so they were not to charge interest to their Israeli brothers and sisters, but they could do so to foreigners in their land. And God said, if you would do this, I'll bless you. If you just trust me, I will bless you. So they were to love their neighbor as themselves. They were to look out for one another in their community. So making vows, 21 through 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. So Jesus said, let your yes be yes, your no be no. This is the same thing. If you make a vow, you need to pay it. Let your yes be yes. But if you don't make a vow, it's not sin to you. Your no is no. It's just you didn't make a commitment, so it's not going to come against you because you didn't make any commitment. Verse 23, that which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform for you shall voluntarily vow to the Lord the to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So vows were voluntary, but if you made a vow, you were to keep the vow. Psalm twenty two twenty five My praise shall be 
of you in the great assembly, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. And then finally, we close out this chapter, looking at chapters 23 and 24 tonight. We close out chapter 23. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. Verse 25, when you come to your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So you could snack on fruit, on grain, as you pass through, whether a vineyard or a grain field. You could have a snack. We read of the disciples doing this, getting condemned for it by the religious rulers because they did it on a Sabbath, on a Sunday or Saturday, their Sabbath. To us is a Sunday today, but um, for them it's a Saturday. They were snacking on grain. In Matthew 12, 1, they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and the disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain to eat it. And so this was allowable by the law. You could go in and have a snack. I kept thinking of this last week and just again this week. Um, My grandpa used to have chickens, a fond memory of going down to visit Papa, and he'd feed them corn feed. But Papa didn't buy the corn feed. He just went out into the corn fields down in southern Illinois, picked a lot of corn, and then would let it dry and then uh, get the kernels off there and have his feed for the year for the chickens. So, Papa, you were wrong. (laughs) You could go out there and have an ear of corn, but you were not to take the corn home as he did. And so that's just one example that I remember. Um, I didn't know any better when I was a kid, but uh, looking back on it, I know better now and realize what he was doing. Today, I would be leery with the corn that grows around here in Illinois. There's so many GMOs that you might be feeding your chicken corn that's meant to be gasoline. And I don't know if there's a big difference between the two, but I wouldn't want to take the chance. So closing out this chapter, and I mentioned this on Monday with David Fiorazzo because he was asking about my dad's testimony. And uh, this was just something that is fresh on my heart. When you make a commitment to the Lord, a vow to the Lord, and this is something that my dad did when he was facing heart surgery in the 1960s. And uh, they delayed the surgery a couple of times. He was actually in the hospital for around six months waiting to have a mitral valve replaced. Ultimately, they accomplished what they were going after. But sometime before having that surgery, he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, if you make me as good a man as I am today, I will serve you all the days of my life. And two years later, Dad was standing and shaving on a Sunday morning So he's shaven, doesn't have a shirt on. His scar began under his right breast and went all the way behind the left side of his back, just a long snake of a scar that was thick and raised. And uh, Dad saw that scar in the mirror, and God said, so Dad saw the scar, and suddenly the scar represented Noah's rainbow to him. And God said, I've kept my promise, now you keep yours. So 
God was saying, you're that good man now, John. Now serve me all the days of your life. When I think about that story, Dad lived 56 years on this earth. And uh, he got saved when he was 28 years old. So his life divides perfectly. 28 years as an unbeliever, 28 years as a believer in Jesus Christ. And God did a lot in the last 28 years of my dad's life when he became a man who desired to walk in the ways of the Lord. So I mention this for a few reasons. One, that my dad has just been a great example in my life of what God can do to somebody who is faithful to keep his word. Second, I realize that dad's faithfulness has had a great impact not only on my life, but many. But I know that I probably, I just don't see that I would have become a preacher without dad having that influence in my life. It could have happened, sure, but it's not how it happened for me. So dad was that example. And finally, it's a good reminder to us. We don't have to make vows. We don't have to say those, let's make a deal, let's make a deal prayers with God. But if we do, God is going to expect you to keep your word. And maybe tonight the Lord is whispering to you, I've kept my side of the bargain, now you keep yours. So chapter 24, one thing that we stand out, that they were to remember that they were the redeemed of the Lord. But we begin with, in verse 1, 1 through 4, if a man takes a wife and marries her, now this actually comes into play in Jesus' ministry because they asked Jesus about this specific portion of Scripture. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. When she has departed, so that's the part that comes into play in the New Testament. The rest of this is strictly Old Testament, but it can have um, significance for us today as well. When she has departed from the house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her, and writes her a certificate of divorce. Man, she's having rough go. Puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house. Or if the latter husband dies, who took her as a wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled or been with another man. For it is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So basically, if you divorce your wife and she ends up marrying someone else, so you could have a legal separation, and as long as uh, she has never been with another man, you could get back together in that sense. But if she married someone else and is either divorced a second time or the husband dies, then you're not to remarry her. It's deemed an abomination before the Lord. And so it's about bringing sin upon the society keeping the land pure that God is part of. So in Jesus' day, they honed in on the first part of this in verse 1. The debate went around, what did Moses mean when he said some uncleanness is found in her? And there were basically two camps. Rabbi, Rabbi Shammai said divorce was allowable if the wife had committed some kind of 
immorality like adultery. But Rabbi Hillel said it doesn't matter what the uncleanness is. If the husband views it as uncleanness, then he could write a certificate of divorce. So anything could cause a husband to write a certificate of divorce. Or if you're Rabbi Shammai, only that which is committing adultery, some type of immorality. But Jesus explained, he didn't deal with it. What he did was explain that Moses wrote this because of the hardness of their heart. This is what Jesus said in Mark 10, 6 through 9. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Did you hear that? <laughs> we need to have that repeated over and over again, especially in our schools and colleges today. From the beginning, God made them male and female. And for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus didn't get into the issue of what is the uncleanness that Moses was referring to. They've been debating that for over 2,000 years. Maybe not quite 2,000 years at that point, but probably 1,400 years, but I digress with that. Anyways, the issue of divorce continues, and it continues to be highly debated even in churches today. And I believe that God can work miracles in situations that may seem hopeless, that God can bring a husband and wife back together whose hearts seem to be totally divided when uh, the hearts of the individuals to return to the Lord. God can bring healing. And although divorce tears lives apart, the two become one flesh. And then when they divorce, they're torn apart. God can work miracles and bring people back together. And or maybe the couple will never be married again. But God can cover our sins. God can bring healing to each situation, each wound, and make the individual whole. So here we have several miscellaneous laws, verses 7 through 22. Some of these will be one or two verses long. Here's a one-verse one, law concerning newlyweds. So I don't like to do this, but my throat is really dry. I'm going to chew on a cough drop. I don't like to do it because it makes me smack. But this will work. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, law concerning newlyweds. If a man takes his new wife, he shall go out, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So very similar to Deuteronomy 27. And there they include the betrothed. If they were betrothed, not married yet, but they had a legal binding contract that they were going to be married, that man did not have to go out to war if he had a betrothed wife. The idea in both of these situations is if the man immediately went off to war, that if he dies in war, then he never fathers a son that could carry on the family name. So that's kind of the idea behind it. But I like it. 
where it says you're not to go out to war, you're not to be charged with any business. So that made me think of some kind of official king's business, some kind of community business, maybe even temple business, that you got nothing out of the ordinary other than taking care of your family, you know, doing whatever work you're doing to provide for yourself and your family. But for that first year, the duty of the husband was to bring happiness to his wife. It's right there in Scripture. Bring happiness to his wife. As the old adage goes, happy wife, happy life. And he was charged by God to do so in the first year of his marriage. Ecclesiastes 9.9, live joyfully with the wife of whom you love all the days of your vain life. Solomon is really bitter when he wrote this. Um, A lot of vanity and vain mentioned in this, but in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, but live joyfully with the wife of whom you love all the days of your vain life, which God has given you under the sun and all the days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and the labor which you perform under the sun. Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, so the husband ought to, all, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So Jesus Christ is the example of what type of love we are to have as husbands toward our wives. Verse 6, no man shall take the lower part or the upper millstone in a pledge, for he takes one's living in a pledge. So millstones had two parts, basically. Had a lower stone and an upper wheel that would uh, rotate around the lower stone and crush whatever you might be crushing. Uh, When we were in Israel, we specifically milled um, grapes to get the olives, I should say, olives to get the olive oil out of it. So, I mean, you use that for grain, use it for olives, you could use it for grapes as well. But millstones were used to grind meal into flour uh, to make bread for food. And if you took one, either the upper or the lower, it was useless. And so this was provision for the family. So you couldn't take that. You couldn't take something that would keep them from being able to provide for their family. So you had to allow them to be able to do the work, provide for their family in that sense. So you'd have to take something else as collateral, but not the upper or lower portion of a millstone. Verse 7, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel, mistreats him or sells him, then the kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. Man, that's what happened in Israel last Saturday. And as I said earlier, uh, the counts of 150 missing, kidnapped, that uh, according to Mosaic law, this is death penalty stuff. 
you kidnap, you mistreat. So you kidnap either to have a slave for yourself or to sell them to someone else. When caught, they are to be put to death. Exodus 21:16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Just in case they didn't hear it the first time, God had it repeated a second time. Laws concerning leprosy, 8 and 9. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you be careful to observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you. Just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when they came out of Egypt. So we get the laws of leprosy in Leviticus 13 and 14. That's the instructions given to the priest, how they played an important role um, role in their community when dealing with leprosy, other uh, individual. It could be some kind of um, mold outbreak on a home, uh, some wall that has what today we would call black mold, how they would deal with that, try to get it cleansed, So it had to do with people, with clothing, uh, with material of houses. Whatever it was, the priests, the Levites were involved. They were to be obedient to them, make sure they followed their instructions. And the reference to Miriam becoming leprous, this was because of her rebellion against God. Remember what God did to Miriam. Well, she rebelled against the Lord when she and Aaron tried to usurp some of the authority that God had given to Moses. And so it's just a reference there. Remember, all these were written as examples, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. They were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages come. All that came before us in Scripture, written as examples that we might learn from them, learn to do good, to do right, learn to keep from evil, we are to remember. So law concerning pledges, 10 through 13, when you lend your brother anything, you shall not go in into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garments, and bless you, and it may be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. So even though we have a creditor and a debtor, there was supposed to be dignity in this, so the guy who's doing the loaning couldn't just barge in the house and take whatever he wanted. He had to wait outside. Every man's house is his castle. It doesn't say that in Scripture anywhere, but it seems to be that respect the home of the individual. And no matter if they're rich or poor, you stay outside, you allow the person to bring out whatever agreed-upon pledge was to be brought out. If it is a poor person and they pledge their garment, their covering, so their long robes, like a jacket for us, would serve not only as a jacket, maybe you don't need it during the day, but at night you'd need it to stay warm. They had to return it because it became their covering for the night, God would see this as righteousness to the creditor. So God said, until your debt is paid, you do this. And if you're obedient to me, this is righteousness to me. 
Um, and so that's good always to be seen in God's eyes as walking in righteousness. Psalm 112.9 says, He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. And so Psalm 112 is talking about the person who fears the Lord. God allows him to disperse abroad, to help others, to give to the poor, and that righteousness will stand. So how do you wish to be seen? As one who stands right before God? Or as a Scrooge or the Grinch. I want to be seen as one who stands right before God. So day laborers, we call them today. Maybe they changed the name of that. Got to be politically correct in everything. So I don't even know if they're called day laborers. But basically someone who's hired for the day to do a job. In Israel, they were to be paid every day. Verses 14 and 15, You shall not oppress the hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in the land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages. You shall not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor. He has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. So they hired day laborers. They were to pay the laborers each day because... They're working to provide for themselves, for their family, and and they would need that daily um, wages to get their daily bread. To fail to pay them would be sin before the Lord. Proverbs 14.31, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors God has mercy on the needy. We want to be those who honor God. Death penalty laws, verse 16, The father shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So how we live, how we judge others, is an individual responsibility in life and death situations. We each stand and fall before the Lord based on how we live our lives. Ultimately, whether we accepted Christ or not, but a father was not to be killed for something his son did or daughter did, and vice versa. Ezekiel 18.20, The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So whether you're righteous or wicked, um, how you stand, you stand as an individual before the Lord. God will judge us as individuals, not as family groups. So the law of strangers and widows, 17 through 18. You shall not pervert justice do the stranger or the fatherless or the widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So Israel was to never forget that their people had been slaves in Egypt where justice was perverted and where widows did suffer. They were not to 
neglect, therefore, the stranger, the fatherless, the widows in their land. They were to be sensitive to the needs of others. James said in James 1.27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So pure and undefiled religion, two parts of that, visiting orphans and widows. The law of gleaning. And we close out with these verses. When you reap your harvest in your field. So this is a command. We finished out the last chapter with being allowed to gather and eat grapes. So when you came into your neighbor land, you could glean. That's what it said in 2323. Here, or 2325, here it speaks about the owner of the vineyard or the owner of the field. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a chief in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the bogs again. You shall be, it shall be for the strangers, the fatherless, the widows. Verse 21, when you gather the grapes in your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. And you shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do these things. So in reaping the harvest in their field, their fruit, fruit trees, their vineyards, they had a one shot at it. They just go get the harvest. Anything that was left, in fact, we learn in the laws of gleaning that they were not even to glean the corner of their fields. Leviticus 19.9 tells us that they were to leave them standing and just leave them alone. Then anything out in the field, uh, anything that was dropped, they were just to leave it to allow it to be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they could have provision for their families. So here, after the harvest, it was legal for them to go with their bags, collect as much as they could. There wouldn't be a lot there, but they could go maybe get enough for their own livelihood but Israel was always to remember that they, their people were once slaves in the land of Egypt. They were never to forget that, always to remember the slavery. In like manner, we should never forget that we are the redeemed of the Lord. Jesus took our sins that held us captive. He paid the price of our sins through his death on the cross. Therefore, in dealing with other people, whether rich or poor, we should treat them with the same great love that we ourselves has received from our Redeemer, our Savior, Jesus. And Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us. And we again, Lord, pray for the nation of Israel tonight as she is in a, a battle, in a war right now. We pray your hand be watching over her. Let your angels go before her. Be her defense. Lord, let them see our Savior, Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.